Hey everybody, this is Gene Troyer. I'm the lead pastor of Restore Church. And what a pleasure it is to welcome you to our podcast. It's my hope that you will be marked by love and encouraged in your faith and inspired to become all God has created you to be. Now I invite you to lean in and enjoy the podcast. All right. Hey, good morning. My name is Gene. I'm part of the team here at Restore. And it's my privilege to uh, help us dive into a brand new series this morning. It's called Everyday Theology, and I'm excited to step into this. We'll talk about a few things over the course of the next uh, couple weeks, easy things like Jesus, hell, and love. That should be easy enough, right? I don't know if you saw my post from yesterday morning, but uh, a couple weeks ago, I was made aware of a baking company called Sweet Eliza's, and they were in our parking lot for the fair weekend for when we had food trucks, and I'll admit that I fell in love with what they make, Um, like the donuts. If you know me at all, you know that I am sort of a uh, foodie, but I also, if I... uh, if I can find a better donut than I've ever had before, I'm likely going to pursue that donut. And Sweet Eliza's, if you remember, Lord have mercy. Like, I've got one at home right now. I wish I'd have brought it. Um, Sweet Eliza's was in the parking lot, and they made the donuts in the truck, and they had them hanging on, like, dowel rods, and they had them stacked the icing was coming off of them. They were warm. You bit into them. It was like biting into a cloud. Anyway, yesterday, they were about 45 minutes away. And so I guess round trip is about an hour and a half that I spent on the road going after a dozen of these donuts. Yes, it was worth it. Do you know the idiom, ignorance is bliss? Well, when it comes to donuts, like you can, you can say, well, I'm ignorance is bliss. Like I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna use that phrase when it comes to eating donuts. But the truth is, I can stick my head in the sand. I can ignore the reality of what it means to my body and my sugar intake and all of that, it doesn't matter if I ignore it, all of it. The truth is, if I make a habit of eating a sweet Eliza's donut every single day, and yesterday I had two of them, and later today I'm gonna have another one, so three in two days, if I keep that up, there are some repercussions for my behavior. The same thing is true when we try to say ignorance is bliss when it comes to the hard things in the scriptures. And so if we're a follower of Jesus this morning, um, you may have had lots of people say lots of things to you. You may have had questions posed to you. And by the way, I believe the best response to a question that you don't know should always be, I don't know, but I'll find out. I don't know, but let me get back to you. That's good. That's that's good 
information for you no matter what field of work you're in. Don't try to say things that you don't know anything about. Don't pretend that you're something that you're not. Just say the truth. I don't know. Nobody thinks you're stupid. They just think you're stupid if you pretend that you know and you fake your way through it and then they find out. So, simple. I don't know, but let me find out. That's what I think we should do with the scriptures. I think we should say, I don't know, but let me find out. Because then you have a moment where you say, you know that question you asked me? How about we get coffee? Because I want to talk to you about that. Because I learned some new things. Well, this is where we're going the next three weeks. We're going to take our head out of the sand, and we're going to actually say, okay, there are a few things that are kind of unclear, and we're going to try to bring some clarity to a few of these things. We're calling it everyday theology because, well, theology means thinking about God or the study of God. And like it or not, you think about God more than you think you do. You think about God, and it's important that you know how to rightly think about God. I like to think of our faith, this Christian faith, this following the way of Jesus as a, um, as a shoe leather faith. In other words, it's a walking faith. It's, a, it's something that we do as we go. It's not something that we leave at home when we leave the house. It goes with us. It is walking it out in the world around us. It affects us. Our daily life, it should impact every interaction that we have. You may be accustomed to very shallow reading of the scriptures. You may love the fact that people say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. But I don't think that in today's Today's world, in today's society, that doesn't fly. Uh, people are not interested in hearing you say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. So what do you think about God? What is your theology, and have you thought about it recently? Have you thought about what it means to follow Jesus? What it means to read the scriptures, and how do you actually apply what you read to your life, and does it make sense to you? Is the Bible the actual word of God? Do you read it in a literal sense? Like, do you read the Bible, and if it says it, I believe it, that settles it, no questions asked, it's just the way it is. Tyler and I talked about a few difficult subjects, and uh, we didn't touch on this one, but does the Bible endorse genocide? I mean, if you read the Bible, I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Pezzarite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, all the other ites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. In 1 Samuel, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. Destroy the whole lot. What do you do with that? Oh, well, that's just Old Testament. We don't do Old Testament. Really? Thou shalt not murder. I think that's in the Old Testament. Do we murder today? What do we do with these contradictions in Scripture? 
One place you read to do one thing, and then the next thing you know, you're reading something that says otherwise. I haven't used the word discombobulation. It's hard for me to even say it, but discombobulation. Have you used that word recently? I'll bet not. But that's what I had to think about this morning when I was, or this week when I was preparing for this message was, man, the Bible is discombobulated. Like, I feel that way. Sort of like, sort of like, um, did you ever watch a movie and you got so immersed in the movie that when you walked out of the theater, you were like, where am I? I did that after watching Avatar. Like, I was so immersed in that movie, and afterwards I thought, hmm, oh, there's blue things flying around somewhere. I'm just not seeing them right now. Where you feel completely discombobulated. There was a moment in Scripture when Jesus took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, took him up to a high mountain. It's believed to have been Mount Tabor. You'll find it in Matthew 17 if you want to turn there. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8, six days later. So what happened before those six days? Six days uh, later, it says, but Jesus had been telling his disciples before this that I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to die. The hard truth is that my life is going to be laid down for the world. That's the hard truth of my trajectory. And, you know, if you know the story, Peter says... What the world? That's not going to happen to you. And Jesus pulls him aside and says, get behind me, Satan. This is going to happen. Whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. This is the trajectory that I am on. And now six days later, Jesus takes Peter and the two brothers, James and John, his inner circle, and leads them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was, come on, you guys, now listen to here. You talk about being discombobulated. They're about to be discombobulated. This is like something from a movie script that you look at and you go, no, uh, uh, can't, be poss- can't possibly be true. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared. So now we have a seance. And began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, as Peter only can, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials, like three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Here's the key. Listen to him. The disciples were terrified and fell face down on the ground. And then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus. They're with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, on the top of Mount Tabor. And this thing happens. This transformation happens. And they see something that is unbelievable. Later, Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody about what you just saw. (laughs) So it's like walking out out of a movie, completely confused. And all of a sudden, you realize you can't tell anybody about this. 
just yet. What do we do with this? Like Moses appears and Elijah appears. See, we can give this a cursory reading and go, well, okay, that happened in the Bible, but I don't know what to make of that. I think this might help. Moses is symbolic of, well, he was the lawgiver. So wrote the Torah. He gives the law that Israel abides by, supposed to. And Elijah is a prophet. So you have a lawgiver, you have a prophet. You have the law and the prophets. As the disciples observe what is happening, they disappear. And only Jesus remains. So let me suggest to you that when the Elijah and Moses disappear, this is like a transactional moment where the Old Testament is giving way to Jesus. The Old Testament happened. The law and the prophets tried to say everything that Jesus was going to be saying, but they could never say everything that needed to be said. We needed God to come in human form. We needed Jesus to come to bring what only Jesus could bring. Jesus is what God has to say. See, P Peter misunderstood that moment. He was looking at this and going, well, we gotta build a tabernacle for both, uh, for all three of them. And yet, what happened after this transfiguration is that Moses and Elijah are off the scene and only Jesus remains. Peter misunderstood that moment. He wanted to make it all equal. He was giving it a flat reading. He was saying, which many people do, we've, we read the Bible in a flat way. Everything has equal measure of importance. But Elijah and Moses are off the scene. Jesus comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. The church has often misunderstood this very thing as well. This is why we get so confused about, well, what do we do about violence in the Bible? I mean, the Bible is a, is a violent book. What do we do with the things that then Jesus speaks against? What do we do with that? Do we just ignore it and go on? Or do we dig deeper? John 1 verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses. Just reiterating again what I just said. The law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so there is this progressive revelation that uh, is subscribed to in many theologians' view. And um, I subscribe to this, that over time, God reveals himself to his people. Do you know that when you came to Christ, when you said yes to Jesus, you didn't automatically flip a switch and become the person that you were going to be after he took you through all the different things that were happening in your life. No, it took time. It takes time. I'm still, after 40 years, I am still in development. I am still learning what it means to follow the way of Jesus, the way that he has called me to, lead, to follow him. 
It is a progressive journey that we walk in and we continue to walk. And then sometimes we trip and we fall and we get back up again and we start back here again and we catch up to where we were. The progressive nature of the revelation of God throughout scripture should, should inform our own understanding of how we live and how we understand our own journey of faith. It also should give us a lot of grace for the people around us that perhaps aren't on the journey at the same place that we are. Moses taught, so here's a law, Moses taught that adulterers, rebellious children, and other sinners should be stoned to death. Hmm. All right, we'd all be dead. We'd all be dead at this point. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, no, I want mercy. I want mercy. I don't want sacrifice. You remember the story in John 8 when the woman was caught in adultery and the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, brought her and threw her down in front of Jesus. And they said, hey, Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap Jesus. Well, Jesus could have said, well, yeah, we have a Bible verse about that. We should pick up some stones. Where are the stones? Let's get this stoning done. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, yeah, well, whoever hasn't sinned, go ahead and throw that first stone. I want mercy, not sacrifice. In Luke 9, James and John, who were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, he had nicknamed them Sons of Thunder, which would imply that they weren't necessarily meek and mild, quiet men, but they were probably much in the same line of thinking as Peter, which was to step in and act and move and do whatever seems right in front of them. So, Jesus said, hey, we got to go to Jerusalem. And so they're on their way. And so he sends James and John ahead of him to, to find a, uh, or to talk to the people in the Samaritan village that they had to pass through. And the Samaritans had a different theology, so there was not unity between them and the children of Israel and the Israelites. And so the Samaritans said, no, you can't come through here. And so when James and John came back to report this to Jesus, they said, should we call down fire on them? And Jesus could have said, yep, we got a Bible verse for that. Let's nuke them. Let's just do it. But what did he say? No. We'll just go another way. We don't need to go through there. We're going to forgive. We're going to move on. See, there's a Bible verse for just about everything you want to do if you don't read the Bible correctly. See, there was biblical precedence for this. Remember Elijah the Tishbite? Um, in um, 2 Kings, Elisha, Elisha has... Uh, has tried to bring correction to the king, and the king sent 
a uh, captain and 50 soldiers to where Elijah was. And they said from the bottom, Elijah's sitting up on a mountain or on a hill. And the captain comes up to the foot of the hill and he says, Hey, Elijah. Oh, man of God. Come down. The king wants to see you. And Elijah says, If I'm the man of God, let fire come down and consume you. Bam. 51 people fried. So the king sends another 51. And again, same deal. Fried. The king sends the third group of 51, the captain and 50. This time, the, the captain climbs to the top of the hill, bows down in front of Elijah and says, the king needs to see you, but have mercy on me. There's 50, there's 102 people down there dead. Can you have mercy on me? Then the angel of the Lord shows up. The angel of the Lord shows up and says, hey, don't be afraid. Go with him. Don't be afraid. And Elijah goes with him. But this is the precedence that the sons of thunder pointed to. Hey, Elijah did this. Can we do this? Can we nuke him? And Jesus says, no, no, there's a better way. There's a better way. I think it's interesting that when Jesus touched Peter, James, and John on the mountain, he said, don't be afraid. When the angel of the Lord shows up with Elijah, she says, or he says, don't be afraid. See, when we're afraid, then we don't say things, I don't like, I don't know, but let me go find out. When we're afraid, we're, af we're simply people that will lash out. We will hurt others. But God comes along. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think it's really interesting that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus over and over speaks to this, how, this behavior, how we should live. In Matthew 5, verse 17, he says, don't misunderstand why I have come. See, we think of the Old Testament, we say, we're done with that. We don't adhere to that at all anymore. Well, the truth is there are a lot of principles and good things to be learned from the Old Testament. It's true that we don't live in that way anymore for the most part. But Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish those because you know what? There's, there's principles that have been since the be written throughout the Old Testament that we adhere to today. So Jesus didn't come to say, don't do those things anymore. I mean, he could have, uh, you find these contradictions like uh, kill and then don't kill. Like, go murder that person. You're supposed to just annihilate them. And then uh, thou shalt not kill. And you should show mercy and then don't show mercy. It's confusing. It can be very confusing if we don't read the scriptures correctly. So Jesus didn't come to abolish these Old Testament scriptures, but he came to fulfill them. In Matthew 5, 38 and 39, he says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So Moses laid out that law. Well, that was better than the law they had before. If we're gonna talk about progressive nature of revelation, reciprocal justice, which was 
what they had before. Like, if, if I do this to you, we do this as kids, right? Like, you scratch my eye, I'm gonna scratch yours. It's an unrestrained, unrelenting, ever-escalating retaliatory violence. This is what the law said. And then Jesus says, which he says like six different times, he says, you've heard it said, but I say. He says, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. And again in 43 and 44, he says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is kind of ridiculous, don't you think? Like this idea that we could, comp- that we could actually do this, that we could actually live turning the other cheek, that we could love our enemy, this is not our human nature. In case you haven't noticed, The world is not evolving as much as it is devolving. And unfortunately, the church isn't doing much better. That's why it's so important that if we're going to say we follow the way of Jesus, that we don't act a fool, that we actually do what we believe we should be doing. Last night I had dinner, Brendan and I had dinner with some friends. And our friend Julie, like she just, she just pushes me over the edge. Like, I sent her a text this morning and I I just said, man, you make me cringe so many times when we're out to dinner. Like she's one of these people that is so direct that I, you know, I truly, like you've heard me talk about this, like Be out there, be in the community, go to places, engage with people, get to know them, get to know their names and like like interact with them and draw all people to Jesus. Do everything you can to bring all everybody with you. Do that. And then I go to dinner with Julie and she looks at the servant. She says, what is your name? Okay, it's Laura. Okay. Hey, Laura, like what's life like for you right now? Uh... I got a divorce after 20 years of marriage. Um, and Julie's just so like in her face. And I'm just sitting over there going, huh, I don't know if it's time yet. Maybe you should have gone easy on this one. So what's your biggest challenge as a single parent? Well, I've got a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old. I, I, it's really hard. And her lips quivering at this point. I'm like, oh, dear God. All right. I thought we could like draw this out a little longer. And then she comes in for the killer. She stands up, she's looking across the table at her, Laura, and Julie says, so what's one prayer request you'd have if you had someone pray for you? (laughs) This is the story of how all of us approach scenarios with people differently. What works for Julie is not natural to me. What's natural to me is maybe not natural to you. But together, we're a beautiful 
combobulated. So we're not discombobulated. Now we're just combobulated. Group of people reading the scriptures, trying to understand what it means for us to engage the scriptures, apply them to our lives, and walk out into the world wearing this faith wherever we go and being the people he's called us to be, which is engaging with each other, which is doing our part to draw all people to Jesus. Jesus says, I will draw all people to me. I will draw all people to me. But our role in all of this is to be the people who kind of help him. We're plan A for getting the word out. He doesn't need our help, but he uses us. And that's super significant as we move about our community. The crazy thing about, the reason I, one of the reasons I said Christ, you know, Jesus is sort of ridiculous in some of the things he says. Part of it is because in that day when he said, you have heard it said, that was a big deal. They had never heard anyone speak with authority like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So he is like, he is putting himself above the law of the scriptures. Now that's something to comprehend. If I were to come up here this morning and say, yeah, I know Jesus said that, but I got something else for you. First of all, that would never happen. And secondly, if it did happen, you should uh, revoke my privileges of speaking in front of you. But not so with Jesus. The crowds were amazed. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were amazed at his teaching. Okay, we're not going to cover everything this morning. So just bear with me. If you have more questions, like, Shoot me a message or something because there are all kinds of questions that can emerge out of a message like this this morning. What I'd ask you is, who do you pattern your life after? Is it Abraham? Is it Moses? Is it David? Is it Elijah? Does God ask us to strike a healthy balance between all of them? Oh, and yeah, throw Jesus in there too. No, he says... He says, listen to my son. Listen to my son. And this morning, if you haven't read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it is the Sermon on the Mount. It is where Jesus teaches us again. How then should we live? Listen to my, listen to my son. I'd encourage you to think deeply, ask good questions. Uh, I talk to a lot of you guys especially. And when I ask, what, you've, what have you been reading recently? I should start keeping track of the number of guys that tell me, yeah, I don't read. I don't read. Jesus says, hey, have you not read? Have you not seen? Have you not heard? If you don't read, guys, that shouldn't be the reason that you are not scripturally literate. 
There's all kinds of ways to become well-read. You can listen. There is such a thing as audible. You should use it. Be in the scriptures. I'll close with this. I, you know, I, three points in a poem. That's usually what uh, pastors used to do. I'm not much into that, but there is this poem that I don't know who wrote it. But I think it ties up what I'm talking about, what we're talking about this morning with what it means, uh, how do we read scripture? What do we do with the contradictions? And here's how it goes. It's a story. We're telling news here, keeping alive an ancient epic, the grand narrative of paradise lost and paradise regained. It's the greatest once upon a time tale ever told, the beautiful story which moves relentlessly toward they lived happily ever after. Never, never, never forget that before it's anything else, it's a story. So let the story live and breathe and thrall and enchant. Don't rip out its guts and leave it lifeless on the dissecting table. Don't make it something it's really not. A catalog of well, of wished for promises. An encyclopedia of God facts. A law journal of divine edicts. A how-to manual for do-it-yourselfers. Find the promises, learn the facts, heed the laws, live the lessons, but don't forget the story. Learn to read the book for what it is. God's great, big, wild, and wonderful surprise-ending love story. Let there be wonder. Let there be mystery. Let there be tragedy. Let there be heartbreak, suspense, surprise. Let there be earthy and human. Let it be celestial and divine. Let it be said. Let it be what it is, and don't try to make it perfect where it's not. This fantastic story of creation, alienation, devastation, incarnation, salvation, restoration with its cast of thousands more Tolstoy novel than thousand-page sermon, it's a story because we are not saved by ideas but by events. Here's a plot line for you. Death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, it's a story, not a plan, not ology or ism, but a story, and it's an algamated Patchwork story told in mixed medium, narration, history, genealogy, prophecy, poetry, parable, psalm, song, sermon, dream, vision, memoir, and letter. So understand the medium. And don't try so hard to miss the point. Try to learn what matters and what doesn't. It's not where and when Job lived, but what Job learned in his painful odyssey and poetic theodicy. It's not how many cubits of water you need to put Mount Everest under a flood, but why the world was so dirty that it needs such a big, big bath. Trying to find Noah's Ark instead of trying to rid the world of violence really is an exercise in missing the point. Speaking of missing the point, it's not did a snake talk, but what the cursed thing said. Because even though I've never met a talking snake, I've sure had serpentine thoughts crawl through my head. Literalism is a kind of escapism by which you move out of the crosshairs of the probing questions. But parable and metaphor have a way of knocking us to the floor. Prose flattened, literalism makes the story small, time confined, and irrelevant. But poetry and allegory travel through time and space to get in our face. Inert facts are easy enough to set on a shelf, but the story well told will haunt you. Yeah, the story well told. That's what is needed. It's time for the story to bust out of the cage and take the stage and demand a hearing once again. It's a story, I tell you, and if you allow the story to seep into your life so that the story begins to weave into your story, 
that's when, at last, my friend, you're reading the Bible right. It's a story, I tell you. And if, I, if you allow the story to seep into your life so that the story begins to weave into your story, that's when you are reading the Bible right. Jesus says, you guys stand with me. Jesus says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Jesus, guys, Jesus is what God has to say. I don't know, but that this morning, you may need to realign yourself with your understanding of what Jesus has to say to you in particular. I wonder if you've allowed the story to intersect your story. You know, we can easily say, yep, I've done that. I did that when I was eight years old. I haven't thought much about it since then. Here's the thing. We're all on a journey. And we get a progressive revelation of Jesus in our lives. And if we... We want to get at least one thing right. It would be to be able to hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit in our lives to say, hey, I want to move you this direction. Listen up. I've got something for you over here. And our obedience to those words is going to make the difference in somebody's life. Last night, like I said, I cringed a little bit when Julie went into this conversation. But I'll tell you, I think Laura's life is different this morning because of that conversation last night. And if you and I can take one little step into a moment that feels cringeworthy and uncomfortable for the good of the world around us, for the good of the next person in front of us. That's all worth it. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Please rate and review us on Spotify and iTunes and join us again for next week's podcast. We love you and pray blessing and peace over you and your family. <laughs>